I'd like to have you turn to the book of Joel in the Old Testament. It is two books to the right of Daniel. Daniel, Hosea, and Joel. And uh, we are beginning chapter 2 this evening. Took us four weeks to get through chapter 1. I don't think it'll take us that long to get through chapter 2, even though it's longer. It's a longer chapter. But the main theme of this prophecy, and it is a prophecy, and it's called one of the minor prophets, not because it's of lesser importance than the major prophets, the major prophets being, of course, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, but it is only minor in the size of the book itself. It's a, uh, and all of the minor prophets are, are smaller books. Hosea is a relatively longer one because it's made up of, uh, of 14 chapters, but uh, Joel has only three. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, as I've mentioned before, it, it has actually four chapters, but it's the same verses. It was just broken down into smaller portions. But it is a book that carries the theme, the day of the Lord. And it is uh, a theme that will carry on into the days and times in which we're living. We're not in the day of the Lord today. Not quite. But everything that we see happening in the world, everything that's moving in that direction, is, is moving toward what is called the day of the Lord. Now, there are certain things that we have to distinguish uh, because there are certain titles given uh, for certain types or times of days. Uh, The day of the Lord is very specific. Uh, The day of Christ is also somewhat specific. If you read that in the New Testament, the day of Christ really speaks of the coming of Jesus for his church, what we call the rapture of the church. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Uh, There are other days mentioned of that sort. But the day of the Lord is very unique in that it is probably the most important day for everyone to know about. The important reason for that is so that we can avoid it. Because it is a day of darkness. It is a day of gloom. It is a day of destruction. It is a great day of deception. And I'm giving you these terms uh, purposely. They all begin with D. It's how you remember the importance of this day. It is a day that doesn't last only for 24 hours. It is a day that speaks more of the time that it represents. The day of the Lord would actually be a seven-year period of time. And we began that study at the very onset of our, of, of our uh, study in Joel in that we talked about the fact that the day of the Lord is what is called the seven years of tribulation that Daniel points out to us in Daniel chapter 9 and throughout the scriptures here and there, but most importantly in the book of Revelation. A seven-year period of time that God is going to continue dealing with Israel for seven more years. The seven years refers to that uh, time frame that Israel still needs to have as far as uh, chastisement for their sins. It's a seven-year period that's left off of the 490 years of, of, um, of chastisement or punishment that they were to go through, the judgment that Israel was to to be taken through by the Lord himself. But at the end of that seven years, of course, would be the restoration of all of the people of Israel under Messiah, the king, who is the Messiah that they rejected, who is Jesus. And of course, at that point, they will be with Jesus for a thousand-year reign, which is also in the book of Revelation. So all of these texts are pointing to a time that is yet to come. Even though in the book of Joel we are 
introduced to a certain kind of judgment that took place. It, it was more of a natural occurrence that has occurred in other places at other times. And that was a devastation or a plague of locusts. And God, through the prophet Joel, spoke to the children of Israel telling them that this destruction that came through these locusts, this locust and devastation and plague, is nothing compared to the day of the Lord and what's going to happen in those seven years. So that's where we are coming into chapter 2. So toward the end of chapter 1, Joel is encouraging the people to gather. And not just to gather, but to gather in a solemn assembly. That we see, and we'll, 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 we'll read about it in, in verse 14 of chapter 1. I'm going to make mention of it in just a moment. But he says, set aside a fast. Now, fasting was something that was done for the sake of hearing from God. From denying the things of this world, the things of pleasure, the things that we eat and drink, you know, putting aside everything to hear God clearly because this was a serious matter. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly would be a very strong assembly. In other words, a serious, I should say, a serious assembly. A day of restraint. We don't see a lot of that anymore, even in the church. Days of restraint, where we need to take time to step back and wait upon the Lord. Actually, we should have those days often as believers just so that we can let the world not distract us or keep us from the things that we want to hear from God. But too often we let the world dictate what, what goes on in our life. And that's, that's a very dangerous thing sometimes. Not always, but, but you know, especially if, if, it's, if the enemy is working hard to get you to, uh, to go in one direction, the Lord is wanting you to go another direction you know that's the wrestling that we have each and every day Paul talked about it as as uh, uh, wrestling against not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers so it was a very important thing a serious assembly that needed to take place so anyway the next thing is of course verse one of chapter two where it says blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Notice the language. We're not dealing with something that is just, well, let's get together if you want or not. No, we need to get together. We need the people of God to come together and listen. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. It is near. It is near at hand. A day of darkness. And here he describes the day of the Lord that's coming. A day of darkness and, a, and, a, and of gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick darkness as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. It is no secret, then, that the event known as the day of the Lord will strike unexpectedly and will strike hard throughout the whole universe. Not just in Israel, by the way, but through the whole universe. That is according to the scriptures, that is according to the word of God. And as I've stated from the onset of our study in Joel, the term, the day of the Lord, needs to be learned. It needs to be understood by the entire human race, not just the Jewish people, not just the Christian. But the whole world needs to understand and know that there is a day coming. Sadly, the majority of the world would not be interested in the biblical account or interpretation of the events. They're not interested in it. But every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be more than interested in what the Word of God says about one of the most significant times described and yet to come. The day of the Lord refers to the terrifying judgment of God that will fall upon the wicked. And not just individuals, but nations as well. <laughs> now we'll see this as we go along in this book, as well as all the ties 
that we see to Joel in not only the Old Testament, but also in the New. But as those of us who trust in the, in the Word of God, we must always remember that the day of the Lord also refers to the great deliverance of God's people from their enemies and from all the corruption of this present world. So the day of the Lord is an important day. It isn't just so much a day that is, is of darkness and gloom. It is a day also of deliverance. The deliverance of the chosen people of God. The deliverance of Israel. Israel is at the very center and always has been and always will be the very center of prophecy. You cannot study prophecy without Israel. Thank the Lord that we can study prophecy the way we do today because there is an Israel again. That is a miracle of God. It is a miracle that Israel today is back in the land where God wants them to be. It isn't completely how it is going to be in the way that God wants it to be, but it is started now, the, the prophetic time clock. Israel was the key that started that countdown, the countdown to the rapture of the church, the countdown to the day of the Lord, the countdown to the great tribulation, the, the countdown to the, the revealing of Antichrist, the countdown to the war of Armageddon, and eventually the countdown to the second coming of Jesus Christ with his saints and with his angels to establish the millennial kingdom in Zion, in Jerusalem, for a thousand years. So it's an important day. And that will certainly be made clearer as we move on in our study of the whole prophecy. Now we know that with, that with certainty, or we know with certainty, that the prophet Joel was shifting the thrust of the Lord's message from the locust invasion that's mentioned in chapter uh, 1, verses 4 and 5, uh, from, from the locust invasion to an even more terrible judgment than that of the locusts. All in all, the locust was to say, listen, you all experience this. You've never seen anything like it, right? This is what he's telling the people. You old men, you need to let the young people know there's something coming that's greater, something that's coming that, that's even more terrible than this locust invasion. They destroyed the crops. They destroyed uh, everything that the animals ate. They got rid of uh, the food sources and supplies. It, it put them in a, in a tremendous uh, state of need. And what he was telling the people was, let people know that this is going to be magnified with the coming of a northern army. And so he's just moving and shifting the thrust of his message from that locust invasion to an even more terrible judgment and that by using an imagery that is drawn from the locust calamity that was at the moment captivating the afflicted nation. Now we will find in this chapter Joel's exhortation to the people to repent. We're not going to get to that particular verse tonight, but I'm going to mention it because it's something that is started in chapter 1 as I already referred to verses 14 and, and 15. But also in this chapter... <laughs> chapter 2, is the promise of the Holy Spirit in the last days under the Messiah of Israel, who is Jesus Christ, under the Messiah, and the deliverance of all believers in him. So Joel is not just a dark book, as it were. In, in other words, it doesn't just present a, 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 dark, a picture of darkness. It is presenting a picture of darkness that's going to lead to deliverance, and to light. So Joel begins a sex, uh, specific portion of his prophecy by, by warning of the invasion by a powerful northern army that would soon sweep down on the tiny nation of Judah. The locust invasion, as bad as it was, would end up being seen as, as minor in comparison. It would be seen as minor in comparison to the destruction and the death caused by this northern army's dreadfully violent brutality. We'll talk about the armies in just a moment. But just keep in mind that the locust invasion was only a foreshadowing 
of the Lord's terrible judgment against sin that would come through various armies down through the ages. Now remember, eventually the Assyrian army would come and take the northern kingdom of Israel, which was made up of ten tribes that uh, broke off from uh, Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom where they actually oversaw Jerusalem where God wanted to be worshipped. The rest wanted to worship idols, so they went north. And they set up two places of worship, one in, in Bethel in the south part of the northern kingdom and one up in Dan in the northern kingdom. And they worshipped uh, idols. They, in particular, they worshipped golden calves in those places. So because they were disobedient to God, they were rebellious to God, they worshipped other gods other than the one true God, God was going to judge them. And he continued to send prophets to tell them, forsake your idols forsake them get away from them because if you do not do that I'm going to have to judge you now people need to understand this is the love of God this is the love of God for his people for his creation the ones that he has called actually to represent him in the world the Jewish people were to be the light the glorious light of God to the Gentiles Instead, they went to the Gentiles and, 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 and adopted their, their gods to worship. So, so long to the witness that they were supposed to be. So long to the testimony that they were supposed to give. So judgment was against that sin. And all the sins that were, that were uh, incorporated in, in idolatry, mostly sexual sins, that would come, it would come through various armies, by the way. The judgments would come through various armies down through the ages. I mentioned the Assyrians. They would come down and they would take uh, the northern kingdom captive. They also wanted to take the southern kingdom, but God prevented that. We'll see that in a moment. And then there were the Babylonians who eventually got to the southern kingdom themselves many years later. Then, of course, in the time of Jesus came the Romans. Of course, the Romans were there before the, 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 uh, the virgin birth of Christ. But nonetheless, they were the empire that was in control at that time, during the time of Jesus. So the Romans there, and then even the armies, if you look to the time that is yet to come, the armies of Antichrist or the armies of Armageddon. These are all the various armies that are going to have some part in presenting what is coming as the day of the Lord. And they are the nations in the end times that will oppose the Lord and his people. That is what we study in, in, in most of the prophecies as well as in, in the Old Testament as well as the book of Revelation. So, <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. Getting back to Joel chapter 2 verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the, of the land tremble for the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. The day of the Lord is coming. This is a warning. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, literally, it's blow the shofar. The shofar was uh, the uh, ram's horn. Uh, that was, of course, uh, uh, blown for assembly. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the trumpets in just a moment. But that's, that, that's what it is. It's a shofar. The shofar is something that God created. God created on the animal for that purpose. Uh, we'll see some other trumpets here in just a moment that are kind of related in, in, in message, but not, uh, not of, of the shofar. It's called another thing. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But near the end of chapter 1, Joel, under, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, announced a fast in a solemn assembly, as I've already mentioned. Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1 says, Sanctify ye a fast, which means set aside a fast. Separate unto yourself a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all of the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord, the Lord your God, and cry unto the Lord. <laughs> so the picture of crying out to the Lord involves seeking God's help, seeking God's strength, seeking God's wisdom, as well as crying out to the Lord in repentance. Wanting to have the heart pure and clean before God. 
To be able to say, Lord, we we need you. We have forsaken you. We repent of that. But we call upon you for your mercies and your loving kindnesses. Because something is happening. Something is coming. Alas, it says for the day. Notice, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. And I want you to notice something. It says, as a destruction from the Almighty. This is something that God is instituting here for the sake of dealing with sin and delivering his people back to himself. So again, he, de- he announces the coming day of the Lord, giving instructions to the people. That's Joel, the prophet. He says, blow the trumpet of warning in Zion, God's holy city. Blow the trumpet that everybody will hear, and when they hear it, they have to come. Everyone had to be warned for the day of the Lord's wrath was approaching. By the way, that kind of, that kind of wrath, if it was coming from uh, the, uh, a nation that God has allowed to come uh, to be used by him to awaken the people, the fact of the matter is, I mean, that's, that's an enemy. But what is, a greater, what is a greater enemy if not the sin that keeps us separated from God? Think about that for just a moment. We always talk about the enemies in our lives. The greatest enemy that we wrestle day in and day out is the sin that we have to, you know, that the Lord says we, we need to put on the armor of God because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We, we wrestle against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, spiritual wickednesses in high places. These are all the things that are trying to keep us from walking the way that God wants us to walk, walking in the direction that God wants to, us to go, doing the things that God wants us to do. We don't get there because we're so caught up doing everything you know that uh, that that uh, is labeled as distraction everybody has to be warned of that especially those who know the lord and 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 seek to know the lord as i mentioned the the trumpet which as i said was a shofar is connected to a passage somewhat uh, uh, closely related with numbers chapter 10 in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 10. It's the fourth book of the Bible. In verses uh, 1 through 3 of Numbers 10, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets. Now here the word is not shofar, because it says, Make thee two trumpets of silver. But this is under God's direction. They were to take silver and, and uh, uh, beat out uh, these two trumpets. The, the word is katsotsera, Katsot said on the Hebrew, uh, make these two trumpets of a whole piece, shalt thou make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So while these particular trumpets have great prophetic significance, especially when connected to the Feast of Trumpets, and we're not going to go into that because of time, uh, they nonetheless were used primarily with a double purpose. The, tr- the trumpets were used with two purposes. One was to blow an alarm. It was to wake the people, something's coming, or something needs to get you all to be awake because something may happen. Not usually good, okay? Maybe sometimes you assemble for something good, but <laughs> very rarely. You're always kind of keeping your guard up. That's why they had watchmen on the walls. By the way, that's why they had walls. People are having problems with walls today. But walls are very important. As a matter of fact, there's walls in the Bible. There are borders in the Bible. There are boundaries in the Bible. There are nations in the Bible. And that is all because of what God wants. God wants it. I don't want to argue with him. There has to be good reason. So just kind of keep that in mind. Blow an alarm, summon the whole congregation to the presence of the Lord. So the first blow of the trumpet was to arouse, to stir and get people awakened. The second trumpet was to instruct. 
The very blowing of the shofar in Joel chapter 2 was both to arouse and to instruct. It is the trumpet of alarm that is blown and the people are warned of the dreadful events about to take place in the day of the Lord which is declared to be near at hand. And remember when we first started in, in Joel that I said there were, uh, there were actually three days coming. One would be the day of the Lord in the sense that it would come in judgment against the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Assyria and Babylon would come and take them into captivity, but they came destroying. So they would destroy the northern kingdom and then they destroy Babylon destroyed the southern kingdom. That was, that was called the immediate uh, fulfillment of judgment. And then the next judgment was the imminent judgment, which would happen at the time of Jesus. After, well, actually, 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead, thereabouts. Because in AD 70, the Romans uh, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and killed about a million Jews. And then they scattered the rest of the Jews into the, all of the world. That was the imminent judgment or the imminent day of judgment. There is an ultimate day, and that is the day of the Lord that Joel is pointing to, which is the day of, of the Antichrist. It is the day of great darkness, much greater darkness than the times of Assyria and Babylon and Rome. Much darker. Because the very personification of the devil himself will be on the earth again. And that is, again, the, the Antichrist in a person. That will be revealed. I don't care to know who it is, honestly. You get on the internet, everybody says, well, I know who the Antichrist is. Well, I'm glad you're smarter than God, you know. But I don't think that's really the, the issue. I, I, don't, I don't care to know. I'm not looking for Antichrist. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. That's who we need to be looking for. Because he said, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for my people. So then, in verse 15, to the end of the prophecy, the trumpet is sounded to call a solemn assembly. An instruction is given in detail regarding the results that will follow the judgment. So, <laughs> just jump down to verse 15 in chapter 2. It says, blow the trumpet in Zion. So it's, it's recalling the next blow of the trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, <coughs> elders gather the children and those who suck the breasts, let uh, the, the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and of the bride out of her closet. And we'll talk about that more uh, next, next time. But this was certainly a way to get the people's attention. To get the people's attention off of the locusts and onto the judgment at hand. And again, it was like, you know, the lo you know, you see what the locusts did? It's just going to be much worse. It's going to be much worse. The prophet was more than likely referring to the Assyrian invasion during the reign of King Hezekiah. Now, I'm, I'm mentioning this because this is the invasion. Remember that Joel is a prophet to the southern kingdom. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom. The temple is still existing. There are still priests based on what we read in Joel. So all of that is still early on before the people start falling away from the Lord and start apostatizing. But nonetheless, in the southern kingdom, there were good kings and bad kings. So during the time of King Hezekiah, the Assyrians under Sennacherib were wanting to, uh, wanting to come down and, and take the southern kingdom of Israel. All of this took, about, uh, took place about 700, 701 B.C. Now, what does that tell you? If you remember our timeline, Joel was more around 800. So this is 100 years later, after the prophecy. 100 years later. And you can read about this in Isaiah 36 and 37. So I want you to you know, let that be your homework tonight. Read Isaiah 36 and 37. Suffice it to say that the Lord allowed the Assyrians to ravage the land 
but he miraculously delivered Jerusalem from being taken captive. And that's a tremendous story. So read that, uh, Isaiah 36 and 37 tonight. It doesn't take that long to read. So the question arises, why should the prophet Joel call the people to repent just to avoid or escape an invasion that would take place a hundred years later? Why would he do that? Now understand, first of all, the best answer is, well, because he's being obedient to the Lord. He's just doing what the Lord told him to say. And that's true. He's telling them to repent. He's telling them to humble themselves before God, humiliate themselves before God. But the invasion wasn't going to come for 100 years. But they didn't know that. That wasn't what he was going to tell them. Oh, listen, the invasion is coming in 100 years. Oh, 100 years? Well, I've got 100 years to make, you know, do all kinds of weird stuff if I want to. No, see, do you understand the point of my question? I want you to remember a couple of things. The people didn't know when the invasion would come. They didn't know. It says, there's something coming. Well, I need to get my life right. You see that? We need to get our lives right before God. Folks, we tell you time and again, Jesus can come at any moment. Will you be ready when he comes? And I'm telling you, I, I, I want him to come tonight. I mean, I, I've been wanting him to come for 47 years. Since the time I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been expecting him. I've never ever said, gee whiz, I wish he would come. I, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if he's ever going to come. No, that's dumb talk, man. That's dumb talk. Even Peter himself said, listen, there's going to be a day where there's going to be scoffers saying, where's the promise of his coming? Man, I'm not going to question God. He's going to come when he's going to come. All I know is that when I look at the scriptures, I see that a lot of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled is being fulfilled and is very close to being completely fulfilled and I want to be ready and I want you to be ready for Jesus. But do we know when he's coming? No, we don't because the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour. Even the Lord himself, Jesus is waiting for, the Lord, for, for God the Father to say, okay, son, go. Go get your, go get your bride. That'd be, I mean, that's okay. And, and then we see, you know, and I won't, by the way, I'm going to talk about that on Sunday mornings. You've got to be here. Because we're going to talk about that. Super Sunday, man. Super Sunday. Maybe he'll come on Super Sunday. We won't have to worry about that dumb game. All right. So remember a couple of things. The people didn't know when the invasion would come. Still, still, their brokenness before the Lord was certainly a means of postponing it. Think about that. We live right before God. God blesses, doesn't he? God will bless. And if we face trials, he will protect. If we cry out to him, he delivers and strengthens. Consider this. We're looking back. You know, our perspective is looking back at history at biblical history. And we see the prophecy of Isaiah 36 and 37 fulfilled what Joel wrote, fulfilled it. But the people were looking ahead at a future yet unknown. They were looking ahead not knowing if the invasion was going to come the day after or the week after or the month after or the year after. So what was the motivation? Stay right with God. Keep your life right before Jesus. Keep your life right before the God of Israel. And one thing is for sure, it is always right to repent and submit to the will of God. There's no better way to secure a blessed future than to always lay your heart before the Lord. By the way, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that the Lord has forgiven us. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed to forgive us of our sins. But folks, every day we're sinners. We, 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 make, we, we make blunders and, you know, we say things or do things. And, you know, it's just that moment. Is it that moment, I just, you know, you just say, Lord, forgive me for that, for that word or that thing I said or that thing I did. God knows your heart, you know. 
And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And it's already been shed. Okay, now we can move on, but move on humbly. Move on humbly with God. It's always right to repent. There's no better way. Listen to the words of Ezekiel 18, verses 30 to 32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent. Notice what God says. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. Now, we can't make the heart a new spirit. What, what he's saying is, you make the right heart and, and, and the right spirit and the new heart and right spirit by, by surrendering the old one to God, by dying to yourself, by coming to him and saying, Lord, give me a new heart. Give me a new mind. Give me a new spirit. Let's finish this and let me come to another passage. He says, for why will you die, O house of Israel? <laughs> why will you die when I have given you everything? When I, have, when I have said to you, I'll be your strength. I'll be your shield. I'll be your buckler. I will be your everything. Why will you die? And notice what God says. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. God doesn't have any pleasure in, in people dying in their sins. So he says, wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Turn yourselves. Repent and go the other direction from the way you've been going. You know, David, the psalmist king, uh, he, he loved the Lord with all of his heart. He loved the Lord with all of his soul and strength. But he was human and he made mistakes. And he fell, and he fell gravely in his time as a king. And he repented of his sins. And one of the things he said to the Lord in Psalm 51 was, created me, and I believe it's in verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within me. That's what God is saying to the people. Come to me. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All it takes is a broken heart. A broken and a contrite spirit, Lord, I will not despise. That's what David said. And even to the, the people of the heathen city-state of Nineveh would this promise be made through the prophet jo uh, Jonah. And Jonah, I mean, he was a guy that, you know, he was a prophet and he, and he it was used by God, but man, he didn't like the Ninevites. He would have rather that the Lord just wiped them out. Lord, just wipe them out. They're a bunch of sinners. I mean, really bad sinners. And the Lord said, no, you're going to go. I had to give him a cruise with a, in a big fish to get him there. Eventually he gets there and he said, repent. Because, yeah, you know, he says, I don't care. But, but that's what God tells me to tell you, so repent. And you know what happened? People repented. Look at verses 5 through 10 of Jonah 5, uh, 3. So the people of Nineveh believed God. You think that the prophet believed that that was going to happen? No way, man. I mean, it just... Well, <laughs> Jonah's like, Lord, am I in a nightmare? Is this a dream? 
The people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. I mean, that was, the, that was what you wore when you were confessing your sins and, and crying out to God for mercy. For a word came unto the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne, he laid his robe from him and, uh, from him and care, uh, covered him with sackcloth and sat on, in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his, and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let, let them not feed nor drink water, but let, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. And he's speaking of the God of, of Jonah. Yea, let, every, let, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. I could just imagine Jonah listening to this and you got to be kidding, Lord. Can't possibly be happening. In verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. <laughs> and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them and he did it not. He did not judge them. Why? Because they repented of their sins. Nineveh, Ninevites. Fish worshipers, whatever you want to call them, they turn to God. Not later on, the people, you know, after the new leadership came in, years later, they'd all turn back to what they were. But for that moment, God sent his prophet to preach repentance. One word, that's ever what we see him say. Repent. And probably with that heart, <laughs> repent. And they did. The day of the Lord would be a day of danger near at hand. A day looming over them and threatening them. That's verse 1. The warning trumpet needed to be blown by the watchmen on the walls of God's holy city. Every citizen should tremble with fear for the day of the Lord's wrath was ready to explode upon the people. It's oftentimes heard to stir reaction from people who feel secure in their prosperity and in their form of worship. Now I mentioned that because that issue would be at the forefront of the Lord's judgments. The worshiping of false gods. That's what eventually would happen both in the northern kingdom and to some extent in the southern kingdom. It was no secret that the people were mixing their worship of the Lord with the worship of other gods. It was no secret that they would go down on, 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 on the Sabbath and, and pay their tithes at, at, at the temple and in the evening, they would be out in the high places, in the groves, you know, worshiping idols and doing their, you know, sexual whatever, because that was part of their worship. That's what they were doing. They were living in the, in the temple and living in the world. And God says, no, 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 no. You, you serve me and me only. The problem was that they failed to see for some reason that the Lord demanded that he alone be worshipped. By the way, it wasn't God's fault. <laughs> he made it always clear to them who he was. He and he alone was and is the only living and true God. And so he and he alone deserves to be worshipped. But now Joel was proclaiming that the Lord would no longer tolerate this type of rebellion against him. The people had gone too far. The day of the Lord, a day of God's holy wrath, was about to fall upon the people, and the day was imminent, which means it was close, close at hand. Verse 2 of Joel 2. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. Now here... Here we find an accumulation of synonyms just to intensify the, uh, uh, the illustration of calamity. You see the words darkness and gloominess and clouds and thick darkness. So those are all synonyms, but the idea is to intensify the darkness. Using every word in the thesaurus, you all know what a thesaurus is, you know, it's a word that gives you all the synonyms of other words, you know. And, and, and it just use every word to do what? To intensify the darkness. The very first word that is used. 
We see a very similar description in Isaiah 8, verse 22, where it says, And they shall look into the earth, and behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. So there it is again, you know, just like intensifying the fact that darkness is not just darkness, but it's darkness. And deep darkness. And greater darkness. Because the more darkness you add to darkness, guess what you get? Darkness. <laughs> So the next, phrase, uh, the next phrase that's given here in chapter uh, 2, verse 2, is the phrase that says, as the morning spread upon the mountains. That's not connected so much to the first phrase, it's connected to the next thought. In other words, as the morning spread upon the mountains, so a numerous and strong people shall spread, them, should, shall spread themselves. So it says, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. So uh, a, a numerous people were coming and spreading themselves out into the land. And when the Assyrian invasion came, it came as a fearful scourge or a plague. I mean, it was like a plague of locusts. Remember that locust? Yeah, they, when they saw the people, the Assyrians coming, they said, man, is, whew, that, that's a lot of, oh, wow, that's a lot of people. That, that's an invasion. I mean, this, the, uh, the, these guys aren't slowing down either. And somewhere down the line, they were beginning to remember what the elders would tell them. Listen, we had a, a, an invasion of locusts, but the prophets said, that's nothing compared to what's coming. Nothing compared to what's coming. And this enemy, in particular the, the Assyrians, came with what can only be considered a scorched earth policy. Look at verse 3. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. In other words, as they came, they came with fire and they burned everything in their path. And if, and if the garden of Eden had been in front of them, the beautiful, rich and luscious garden of Eden, when they, when they finished passing by, you would look back and it would just be one fiery mess. Destroyed completely. That's the picture here. Fire devoureth before them, which means the fire went out and behind them a flame burneth. In other words, once they went through, they, the fire kept burning. And yea, nothing shall escape them. So when put together, the day of the Lord would be a day of darkness and gloom, a day of the thickest of clouds and deepest blackness imaginable. A picture of utter terror as both judgment and destruction strike the nation of Judah. It is also a bleak picture of absolute helplessness gripping people's hearts. Because when the day ultimately comes, the day of the Lord, the seven-year period uh, known as the tribulation period, when that day ultimately comes, people's hearts will melt within them and a spirit of hopelessness will take hold of them. For there will be no escape whatsoever. You know, if people, I was just thinking, you know, if people just began to read this and say, wow, if this is going to happen, what must I do to be saved? Does that question sound familiar? Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, went to the temple and before 3,000 men, preached the message of Jesus Christ and what they, the people had done to the Messiah of Israel. His own people. And at the very end of that message that he gave, <laughs> the cry came from the people, what must we do to be saved? How much greater then do we see in a, in a sense this, this hopelessness by just hearing this plague that's coming, this army of, of destruction, what must we do to be saved? Consider the words of Jesus from a text that I quoted this past weekend in Luke 21. He said, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations <laughs> with perplexity. I, I don't want to burst your balloons, you know, when you think that we got a lot of great stuff going on in the world. But, folks, on the earth today is distress of nations with perplexity. 
with perplexity, if I can simplify it any, is, is to say, what's going on in this world? It's insane. Have you ever said that about the things that you read in the news or see in the news? Uh, the, the, I mean, the craziness that's going on in the world. And I think, I think, of, I think of Venezuela. I keep, I keep, you know, my heart really kind of reaches out to Venezuela because, you know, these people have, have a rich history and a rich culture that's been destroyed by communistic socialism. It's been destroyed. I, I'm going to take the moment to, to tell you that uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I was, <laughs> excuse me, I was listening on YouTube to an Orquesta Juventil de Venezuela. This was a few years ago. This wasn't recent. So we're talking about maybe five, six years ago. Uh, it was a, a, an orchestra made up of, 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 of preteens and teenagers. Now, I used to be a, a music teacher, so... Um, to me, I was, just, I was just so attracted to the, the, the ages and the sizes of all these kids. But when they began to play Mahler's first symphony, and that's, that's no, that, you know, that's, you, you, can't even, you can't even simplify that piece. They played every note. There was, there was close to 150 kids on stage. Violins, uh, you know, orchestra, uh, winds and brass and percussion. These kids were amazing. And, 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 and one of the great musicians today, one of the con great conductors, Gustavo Dudamel, is, uh, he's, he's, I'm not sure if he's still with Los Angeles Philharmonic, he's a conductor. Came out of that same system of, of music that they, they were teaching. Rich, rich, I mean, I'm just, what I'm saying is, here's a, here's a country that was rich. In, 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 this, uh, in, in the arts, all of a sudden, before you know it, it's a country where people have, have not enough money to buy water, bread, or milk. And, and it's, it's, it's troubling to see that when you see what, where, they, where they've been and where they could have been. I only use that as an example, but the, the point is, it, this is insane. And, and, and just this little example is nothing compared to what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year because it's not going to get any better. The scriptures are very clear that we are headed toward the day of the Lord. There's no doubt. Jesus said, and these are the words of Christ, upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. What is happening here? How did this get to where it is? The sea and the waves roaring? Men's hearts failing them for fear? Heart conditions are, I mean, you know, rising day by day. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, which means they are, their hearts are failing them because of the expectation of those things that are coming. Folks, that shouldn't be for the believer in Jesus Christ. We have greater expectations than that. But the people on this earth don't. All they're expecting then, if they see bad, is worse. They'd like to believe it's going to get better. It's not going to get better. And I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom and gloom. I just want to be a prophet of truth. And not really a prophet of truth, but a spokesman of truth. Because that's what each and every one of us is supposed to be if we're believers in Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Well, they're being shaken pretty good. The powers of heaven. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the rulers of darkness of, of the earth and spiritual wickednesses in high places. So the immediate, the imminent, and the ultimate day of the Lord were and will be a day of war. It is going to be a day of war. That's where it's all headed. The most powerful army ever mobilized would suddenly invade the nation of Judah. That's verses 2 through 9. It is extremely interesting that the statement in verse 2, that there would never be another army as powerful, not even in the ages to come, 
would be an army unrivaled and unparalleled in all of history. That could be said of the Assyrian army in its day and later of the Babylonian army in its day and the Roman armies in, the, in their days, but they were yet to come. But Joel's statement has to be referring to the massive army that will march against the Lord and his people in the end time. How do we know this? By going, sneaking a peek at chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, again, I will also gather all nations. That hasn't happened yet. This is yet to come, and it's predicted in the book of Revelation. I will gather, oh, and the book of Zechariah. I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. You know where that is? That's in Israel. And will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and, oh, look at this, parted my land. The United Nations and the governments of this world have been doing their best since 1948 to part the land that belongs to God. Not Israel, it belongs to God. God is the one giving it to Israel. But it's his land. He said, part in my land. You want to mess with God and his possession? I don't. But some people think that they can. Even presidential administrations in our own country have sought some way to divide the land. And don't think that it's liberal or conservative. You know what? It doesn't matter. They're not reading the scriptures. They're not knowing that God has set that land aside for himself and for his people. All right. So as we continue on with the illustration of the devastating army, I'm going to put it in overdrive, okay, because i got five minutes. But you'll, if you give me a couple of extra minutes. All right. So the, the appearance of them, it says in verse 4, the army. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses. And as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness, which means all faces are going to turn pale. I mean just pale. The army would appear with a frightening war machine. Are there armies like that today? And to the prophet or to the apostle like John, when he saw these things in the book of Revelation, he only could describe them the way that, with, with the knowledge of what he had been given, but that's the way God wanted him to. Like locusts and horses and, and, and flying animals and all kinds of other things. When we get to Revelation, we'll talk about that. But take note how the prophet Joel merges the invasion by the locusts with the invasion of the northern army, both of them having an appearance of a locust-like military force. In the case of the northern army, they would have a war machine that included horses and cavalry and chariots, and each of them and all of them, together with the accompanying terrifying noise. War can be pretty loud. The army itself would be well-organized and disciplined in their charge. They would never swerve in their attack. Look at verse 7 and 8. They shall run like a mighty man, or they shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. I mean, well-trained. They shall march every one on his ways. They shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk every one in his, own, in his path. So they, I mean, they're, they're like flanked in such a way that, you know, got, nothing is, is going to stop them. That's just like the locusts. They shall walk every one in his own path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. That just speaks of the armor bearing that, they, that they're going to be wearing. The, armor, uh, the army would have uh, overwhelming forces and be invincible as they attacked and conquered the city. Verse 9. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the houses. They shall enter in at the windows like a thief. If you've been to Jerusalem, and some of us have, we've seen the wall of the old city 
houses are built up along the walls, all around. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, it's, it's describing Jerusalem today. The day of the Lord will be a day of astounding signs in heaven. Joel chapter 2 verse 10, the earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, the stars shall withdraw their shining. There's going to be a lot of, of uh, atmospheric activity. These signs will also apparently include earthquakes. By the way, you know that earthquakes are up uh, uh, exponentially since uh, probably 30, 40 years ago. Uh, the, the occurrence of, uh, of uh, uh, earthquakes are, are up. Uh, catastrophic, uh, catastrophic volcanic eruptions. It's, there's not a week that you don't read about some place that has volcanoes that they're worried about, you know, like in Hawaii recently. Uh, just they're waiting to see what's going to happen. They've already erupted in some cases. The collision of asteroids and meteors with the Earth, that's, that's something that people are worried about all the time. That's mainly because somebody's saying, well, you know, we see some asteroids coming. They're headed right to the Earth, you know with their $50, you know, uh, telescope. Uh, eclipses of the sun, moon, and stars. We had an eclipse recently. The stars themselves being blacked out by the power of the Lord. You know, we're also, we're also worried about China and, and, and Russia, uh, you know, with the electromagnetic pulse, and, and, and all of a sudden you're doing something, and boom, we're going to be out of, out of light and all of that. That's, that's, that's a possibility, but... Uh, I think God is the one that has greater power because he can turn off all the stars at night. And the sun and the moon. What can the Chinese and the Russians do? Just lights. Obviously the spirit of God was using Joel now to forecast <laughs> the cosmic chaos that will take place in the end time of history. A chaos that will characterize the climatic day of the Lord, the day and the time that God will pour out his wrath upon the earth. Jump down to Joel 2, verses 30 and 31 for just a moment. We'll come back to it, of course, later. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. So all of those things are going to be happening. Isaiah 13, verses 10 and 11 says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. Folks, we live in a, in a, in a generation of arrogance. Arrogance in politics, arrogance in government, arrogance in education, arrogance in the arts, just arrogance in every aspect of life today, business. But the arrogance is about being God and not worshiping God. It's about putting the God of, it, the, God of the Bible aside the God who sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life to say we're God we determine we determine what's right I saw on the news today a lady that was so upset and she was a college professor I believe she was so upset at, uh, at her city council, and I'm trying to remember where it was. I lost it for a moment. But they had stopped doing the Pledge of Allegiance because they said, well, the Pledge of Allegiance is just some kind of white nationalistic, you know, racist statement. And she went up and asked for time before the city council, and she went up with a flag and a picture of her dad who served in World War II, and she stood there. And she gave the Pledge of Allegiance all the way through. Now I'm saying, you know, I, I, I'm saying that to say that there are so many 
arrogant statements being made today about racism without understanding what even racism is and calling people Nazis and calling people this and calling people that. That's arrogance. Arrogance with ignorance leads to what we see happening in our world today. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord. Lastly, verse 11 of Joel chapter 2. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. And notice now, the Lord and his army. So now we're not describing the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans. We're talking about the real day of the Lord. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? The warning is for all, the day of the Lord is coming. And Paul the Apostle, I'm going to close with this very quickly. Paul the Apostle, and I quoted this as well this weekend. But of the times and seasons, brethren, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For you yourselves, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Paul talks about the day of the Lord coming. For when they shall say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. The peace and safety is going to be linked to the person of the Antichrist. We'll talk about that more later. Then sudden destruction cometh, as travail upon a woman with child, they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. He says to the church, brethren, Believers that are brothers in Christ, brethren, you are not in darkness that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light, the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So we have the light of the glory of Christ to let it shine. And we're to shine bright. We're to shine humbly because we need to let the light of Christ shine it's not our light. We're just the reflectors of that light. But it is our light in that it belongs to us as believers. The responsibility belongs to us to let the light of the glory of Christ shine. Amen?